Welcome to another episode of the Green Minds podcast. My name is Claudia, and today I'm joined by Anna Brohl. Anna is a director of energy leadership at a US-based NGO, the Clean Energy Leadership Institute. In the past, she worked as an energy economist and statistician at the engineering consulting firm Tetra Tech and an ORISE fellow in the US Department of Energy. Over the years, Anna worked on applied research projects to help drive down the cost of energy transition and make clean energy accessible to everyone. In addition, she teaches graduate classes in energy economics and policy at the School for Advanced International Studies at John Hopkins University. A native of Estonia, she's an academic director of a summer school in sustainability at the Estonian Business School and an annual degree lead teaching classes in artificial intelligence in business. Hi, Anna. Nice to see you again. Just for context, I met Anna during this year's summer school, the International Summer School on Sustainability and Digitalization in Tallinn, Estonia, which she coordinates, and I really recommend it. I believe the signups are already open for next year. So if anyone is interested, they should definitely go for it. I will also link the website in the show notes so that you can check it out. Hi, Claudia. First of all, thank you for having me in this podcast. It's a great pleasure to be invited. Thank you for the plug to the summer school and for the kind words. During the summer school, you gave a lecture on net zero and 100% renewable energy scenarios. And a couple of weeks ago, your paper on the same topic was published. Could you please briefly describe this research what motivated it and what results you found? I'm happy to talk about my research that just appeared in the book series uh, published by Paul Grave. Uh, we have reviewed, uh, we means my co-authors from DIW Berlin and EADP have reviewed more than 100 net zero and 100% renewable energy scenarios, as, a, as well as general scenarios. And what we have found, and this was the motivation for our research, is that it will be very, very difficult to meet Paris targets. So when everybody meets at COP27 just happened, we hear all of these big proclamations, how everybody is going to get to net zero. So we wanted to figure out how the future would look like if this is indeed to happen. And let me tell you, it reads like science fiction. Unfortunately, we have, it will be incredibly hard to implement. And we have also found that a lot of uh, scenarios are developed by Western think tanks, the Western research institutions, even if these pathways are will supposedly be applicable to the developing countries. So this Western thinking might be problematic because different countries would want to follow different pathways that are relevant for them. So it would be interesting to see more scenarios coming out from, from non-weird countries, weird standing for Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. There was also another defining feature that I was mesmerized by when we're talking about net zero and 100% renewable scenarios is pretty much a lack of consideration for black swan events, or you can think about them as dark horses or general purpose technology, events that introduce, that come from the fat tails of fusions, meaning that these could be negative or positive shocks to our energy system or economic system. So none of these scenarios really looked very deeply into that. The scenarios stayed within the plausible pretty narrow cone of how the future is going to be like. In that sense, given that we have lived through incredible tribulations just in the last two, three years, that we had pandemics, we had natural disasters, freezes, and floods, uh, 
as well as recent war in Europe, I feel like black swans in general, unexpected events will be the ones that define our future. There is also interesting lack of consensus with respect to the importance of nuclear energy as well as hydrogen. While nuclear has been there for a while, it's a big question whether small modular nuclear reactors are going to take off and how exactly hydrogen is going to be integrated in the system. Uh, there were other defining features across all of these scenarios that were present. It's high energy efficiency of the economy, very high degree of electrification, very high share of renewable energy. So that seems to be a consensus. Um, in general, our uh, ability to reach net zero will depend on such factors as technology, not a big surprise, but also economic growth and population growth. So we have to be very honest with ourselves that at the moment there is no energy transition happening. So we are still in the world of energy addition when the world population is growing and the economies grow. And even though our efficiencies are increasing, we are building out renewables in on unprecedented scale and we're still uh, using more energy and our emissions are growing, even though all of these wonderful developments are happening precisely because our population is growing and economies are growing. It's very interesting, especially what you mentioned, the energy addition. I've never thought of it this way. It's definitely something to think about. So you also mentioned several like energy scenarios for the future. So which of them do you believe is the most likely to happen or materialize going forward? That's a million dollar question and a lot of politicians and analysts want to know the answer. I do believe that a lot of our ability to get to net zero will be determined by such wonderful factors such as chance luck and some black swan events. Think about how big inventions were made how internet was made how electricity was discovered it will be it could be a, that we are standing just one step away from a huge evolu revolution in technology so evolution of technology is not going to cut it anymore i don't believe so we need to have a step change in technological innovation and i keep talking about it but i do think that the package of technologies that are commonly known as ai or artificial intelligence are going to be that step change basically we will be using ai for pretty much everything to as our footprint track every single item that we buy from cradle to grave we will know it will be clear to every consumer how their money is spent and how industry is working. So it will become all very transparent. Uh, another chance is that the world might be very much impacted by the political situation in the U.S., so it's one of the biggest economies in the world. And if it keeps flip-flopping every four years with a new political administration coming in on its climate change commitments, it's very discouraging to the rest of the world. So I do think that American voters will have a disproportionate impact on whether we as Earth citizens will be able to achieve net zero by 2050. And finally, not to make it all US-centric, I do think that the biggest action in the coming years will be in the Asia and 
Africa, where this population is growing, where economic growth is happening, where we're still building new coal power plants. So the question is how quickly will especially African nations be able to leapfrog, how quickly this technology is going to be transferred and adopted, and whether the developed nations will be able to compensate for existing damages that already were done to the ecosystem. So all of that is still TBD, and hopefully will be worked out on the highest level so these promises will be credible and not something that the next administration of whatever country will be able to pedal back on. And what you mentioned about artificial intelligence is definitely something we will touch upon a bit in my next question. But before that, let's stay a bit with the with energy and talk about grid parity, respectively uh, grid balance. So as you mentioned, we are still living in an era where countries run on more sources of energy, so not only renewables, obviously. And That's also due to the variability and intermittency, and that's why fossil fuels are still needed. But what do you think that the transitional and then also the final grid balance mix will be? So, for example, do you think we can go to which renewable technology do you think will be the one to power us through once energy transition is over in a way? And how will it look like until then? This is a great question. And the answer is that it's going to be very regional. I do think that it will be regional markets and Europe is just one big region and obviously energy mix will be very different in different parts of Europe. The production will be very different depending on the part of Europe where you're in just based on resource availability. However, if the markets If they're interconnected energy markets, then there will be more regional energy mixes. And obviously in the Sun Belt, in Africa and Latin America, where solar radiation is great, it would be solar. The U.S. is famous for its wind belt, where wind wind is blowing constantly with high speeds there you can get really great generation really great returns on investment i do think that there will be a big built out of offshore wind and specifically also floating offshore wind it's already started in europe it still hasn't been implemented greatly in the us but the biden administration came out with goals to get to 30 gigawatts by 2030 and looking at the calendar we only have about seven years to go at the moment the u.s has less than less than 50 megawatts of wind installed so that has to be really great expansion so i hope this answers your question i do think that regional weather patterns and regional resource availability is going to determine the electricity mix and also interconnectedness of electricity markets would make it easier to balance the grid plus a huge build out in battery storage needs to happen. And there, I do think that we will be looking at some breakthrough technologies that need to be implemented, be it some form of hydrogen storage, long-term battery storage, good old pumped hydro. So we will need to revisit all of these possibilities. Yeah, this definitely answers my question. And But the interesting thing now is to think about how to deploy it, right? So how do we deploy these renewables? You mentioned offshore wind. And I know that some of your research focuses on kind of social barriers and or like accepting barriers to wind turbines rollout. So could you please elaborate on that? I, I find it really interesting. 
Absolutely. My research looks at social acceptance or public acceptance of wind turbines. And in that sense, wind turbines are not that different from other large-scale energy infrastructure that you simply can't hide. The problem is that we are used to seeing uh, high-voltage transmission lines. We're used to seeing bridges and roads and factories, but wind power is still novel to us. A lot of the people haven't been close to a wind turbine as our psyche fills in the gap and we are hearing in the news like, oh, wind turbines are very loud. So the first time when I visited a wind turbine, I was shocked by how quiet it is. We, I have a recording of myself standing right underneath a wind turbine that probably was illegal to do. I was a little too close to it, but I was pretty much able to touch it. And it was very quiet. It was a huge turbine, upstate New York. So I do think that there is a lot of psychological un discomfort that people are experiencing when these proje projects are announced, especially if these are offshore and a lot of the coastal area dwellers. I'm one of them. I live now on the shore, eastern shore of Maryland. It's a very touristy location. So a lot of people are very worried of what's going to happen with our beautiful landscapes. Are tourists not going to come anymore because we have these quote-unquote ugly wind turbines spoiling our landscape and are they going to kill all the birds? So there are a lot of concerns and my church is tackling these concerns one at a time. So we have shown that, for example, if, if our population is shown pictures of different sizes of wind turbines, then uh, since turbines are so far offshore, then nobody can really determine if it's a 14 megawatt turbine or a smaller, say, 10 megawatt turbine. There have been protests against larger turbines, but it doesn't really make any difference because they're so far out. But it makes a huge difference with respect to generation and offset of emissions that these turbines are providing by generating green electricity. So that's just one aspect. That's the size of turbines and how far they are offshore. We've tackled other issues such as how loud are turbines. So we put virtual reality kits with headphones. We got some participants in a layup at Bentley University in Massachusetts. And they were in a way shocked, again, just like I was, how quiet the turbines are. And if we model people being on the beach, then they really can't hear turbines, even if they're five nautical miles offshore. In other words, we're alleviating some of these concerns by showing people how the turbines are going to look like, how they're going to sound. And also some of the folks who haven't seen turbines think that the blades are rotating really fast. And this is why a lot of the vulnerable birds will be killed. At the same time, when they see actual simulations, they see that the blades go around really slowly. Then the expectations of bird casualties really decreases as well. So there, there will be casualties, and I'm not minimizing that. I think it's very important to think about it. Devil isn't the detail. It matters what bird get harmed by turbines in the sense that they're there, is, there are birds that are so abundant that even if some adult uh, adult birds are 
taken out by wind turbines, it doesn't impact the bird population, but there are some very vulnerable birds that live in the area that even harming several birds might collapse the population. And this is where we want to focus on. And there are now, again, new technologies such as artificial intelligence that recognizes the kind of bird that is flying and switches off the wind turbines as the bird is transitioning through the offshore wind park. This is all being tested and implemented. So we we have that vision enabled technology that is going to help us work through that problem. Yeah, this is very fascinating. And I feel like the social or, as you said, the people's acceptance of the transition towards renewables, it's underestimated how important it is actually to, to research these things and misconceptions about it. So it's actually very valuable what you're doing in this area. And I know there is this debate about how much can an individual do versus how important is policy in terms of the energy transition. But mm, th- there has been this, let's say, practice of peak shifting versus peak shaving in order to optimize energy usage. And this is also something that consumers can do themselves. So could you please maybe explain what peak shifting versus peak shaving is and how consumers can be nudged towards this? Yes, absolutely. Let me preface with the notion that I do think that as consumers, as end consumers of everything that is produced by the industrial complex, as people who put politicians in place to write policies, we do have a huge impact on our energy system. I encourage everyone to feel empowered to make these decisions, to act in the way that is consistent with your beliefs. So in that way, I'm very squarely on the side of consumer being the ultimate chooser and decider of how the system works. So all the systems are made out of people. It's just a question of getting the incentives right. And just an example, recently there was a threat of a grid collapse in California and the Fornian utility operator pushed out a note on everybody's cell phone saying, can we please just adjust our thermostats by a couple of degrees down? And people did it and the grid collapse didn't happen, the blackouts. So it's a happy ending that shows that our collective action really matters. And now coming back to your question of peak shifting, it's the idea of consuming electricity, but at a different time. In other words, for example, if you decide to charge your electric vehicle, maybe for the grid, it's not the best idea to do it at the time of of peak demand. The same with doing laundry or dishes. A lot of the current devices can be programmed to do it during the night when the demand is lowest. Basically, the idea is to match current grid demand with current supply. And we have a pretty good idea when peak demand is happening. So reducing the consumption, the household consumption or business consumption, if you're, for example, operating a business away from these peak hours when the demand on the grids are highest, and implicitly the prices for electricity should be highest, but not a lot of residential or commercial customers are observing these prices. That's one of the problems, actually, that these prices are not transparent. Only wholesale market participants know hour by hour more or less minute by minute what the price is. Peak shaving is a similar concept, meaning that we reduce the peak, the system level peak 
so that the utility doesn't have to plan for this peak and doesn't have to put in a lot of costly infrastructure to meet annual peak that might only last for an hour or two a year. This might save millions of dollars, millions of euros. And if we incentivize the consumers, and again, I'm not only talking about residential, this can be done with industrial consumers, commercial consumers, to use the same electricity but do it differently for example pre-cool some of their some of the buildings conduct energy intensive activity activities during the times when electricity is cheapest that is obviously very beneficial to the grid and this will reduce the ever overall cost of the systems and you're asking how can we be nudged towards this and as an economist i say hey we have such a thing as price so price mechanisms are obviously the way to go. You can expose consumers more and more to market prices. Of course, this can, for residential consumers, this will be a very hard learning curve. And we have seen some negative examples, for example, from Texas, where the price has spiked and a lot of residential consumers are now footing the bill, electricity bill that is thousands of dollars because the cost went to nine thousand dollars per megawatt hour we are we are in the situation where we have options also to subsidize some of the peak shaving and peak shifting activity for example some utilities in the u.s south are promising the customer certain amount to offset their electric bill. It's not a lot. It's maybe $35 to be part of a program that maybe in, a, in an event, in an extreme event, when there is very high demand on the grid, the utility is going to reduce, so increase the temperature at home in the sense, giving away some of the freedom of setting your own thermostat, the consumer uh, allows the utility to make themselves uncomfortable just a little bit by a couple of degrees, making a little hotter at home, at the same time providing this great benefit to the grid. In other words, we can nudge the folks by carrots, sticks, and sermons. Carrots is let's pay consumer money for the practice of peak shaving or peak shifting. Stick could be saying that, oh, you can't consume over a certain amount. And if you consume, then your prices are going to increase. That's the concept of block pricing. And sermons, that's another way of saying that we will provide information saying that, hey, your neighbor is consuming much less than you. Why is that? So introducing some of the informational component to to changing this behavior. So this is how economists think about it, like three ways of nudging consumers. Super interesting perspective. I just have one fun fact to, to add to this. Maybe this is a different thing, but I just remember in the last years in my family home in Slovakia, we had this like a small posted note on the fridge, which had like times whenever the electricity was the most expensive. So obviously it was always when people needed the most, let's say between 6.30 a.m. and 8.30 a.m. But I just remember always my mom saying to me, try to minimize everything, as you mentioned, pre-boiling and everything. I don't know, it's already a thing. And also in countries like Slovakia, so I have I have hopes and, and like, I'm sure people are already doing this. It's just maybe the term speaks shifting peak shaving weren't that aren't that coined let's say and definitely there is still more space for more people to do this and thus reduced consumption 
and or like change shift consumption. Okay, let's maybe go more towards the US and renewables. What do you see as the biggest barriers in the renewable energy deployment in the US? And how can behavioral science or like your research, what you deem to be the most effective way of deploying it? Great question. If I'm thinking about behavioral science, one of the most important insights is the power of defaults. At the moment, we have gray default, meaning that if we buy electricity, we are automatically subscribed to the cheapest package with the highest share of fossil-generated electricity. If we buy a car, the assumption is that the default is the internal combustion engine or ECE car, ICE car. Retirement accounts are mostly invested into companies that are perhaps not highest ranked with respect to ESG. If we buy a house, the default, it's not a green building and so on. The power of default is incredibly important and it's a very sticky choice. Basically, there was an experiment at the University of St. Gallen that I really love quoting that showed how people are switching or not switching their electricity defaults and how their back reasoning finding for a reason to not switch. So there were two kinds of folks. One received a screen saying that you're being signed up for a gray electricity package. And of course, they examined all the other options, but then they were asked to talk about their decision making. They said, I don't want to spend more money and how important is my decision anyway in the grand scheme of things. So uh, folks reasoned back saying, oh, they want to stick with a gray default. Only 10% of people switched. Then the researchers did an opposite experiment and put a green default with uh, the most expensive package of solar and locally produced, I think it was hydro and wind. And the respondents again reasoned in favor of the default, saying that we want to support the environment, we want to support regional electricity production. And again, 90% of the folks stayed with the default. So if we change the default, we will change the system. And in my view vision of the 2050. I would love to see our residential and office buildings being built with a green default. This is already happening with many buildings in the U.S., partially because of mandates. I want to see our retirement investment funds becoming green by default. And then if you want to invest into other sectors, be my guest, but then you have to make this decision. The same with ICE cars. When I go online, I want to see plug-in hybrids and other cars showed to me as a default. Now, this is the question from the behavioral science side. You asked me, what are the biggest barriers in intermittent renewable deployment in the U.S.? You have asked the correct, you've added the correct word into the question itself. It's the intermittency that is the biggest problem right now that, uh, that is going to impact our ability of switching into high percentage of renewable energy on the grid. It's basically the lack of long-term storage. Another problem in the U.S. is that the country has lost capacity to build out large-scale infrastructure quickly and efficiently. As the U.S. is a litigious nation, everybody can take 
everybody else to court and precious time is wasted and we really don't have that time. Uh, also, on top of that, building out energy infrastructure takes years and the risks are very high. And if you know that your project might be bogged down in court for 10 years, only very few actors have the ability to develop such a project. It's just very risky and very costly. I have one small addition towards the default. I actually never thought of it that way. And now when I kind of thought of it that way in, in topics like, let's say, our settings for printing, right? That's also a thing where default matters because the way you set your printer and if you are in a place like a university, it makes an impact because let's say the color toner is way more carbon emissions heavy than the black and white toner. This is a different type of comparison, but it, my mind kind of made this loop towards a small thing like printers. But when you translate this to an issue like electricity and, and renewables, etc., it actually is overwhelming how much impact that can make. And staying in the US there, I just want to quickly touch on the topic of the IRA, which is the Inflation Reduction Act. Just for listeners who might, have, might not have heard about it, it's the largest climate policy to date in the US with almost $370 billion in climate-related investment that was passed recently in the US. And it is expected to, if all goes well and if everything is fulfilled, decrease greenhouse gas emissions by 40% by 2030 in many ways through incentivizing deployment of renewables, as we talked about, through tax credits or investments in the clean tech R&D. So my question to you as a person living in the US and working there and everything, what are your expectations towards the IRA and also in context of the discussion we just had? It's magic that it got passed. IRA has established a much needed market certainty for at least 10 years, which again is a contrast to the boom and bust cycle in a way that all the market players were exposed to in prior years. IRA or IRA uses tax credits that are already very familiar to other market players, and I really welcome that. Even though most economists agree that a carbon tax would have been superior to tax credits, I do think that in the current political uh, climate in the US, carbon tax is a non-starter. So in the sense it was a compromise, but a good one because the system is already all built out. Their tax equity investors all lined up waiting for new projects to come online so that they can purchase these tax credits and offset their tax liabilities towards the IRS. This being said, the role of the Treasury and the IRS has really increased as a result of this legislation because there are a lot of pending details with respect to specific verbiage that is used in IRA that we don't have clarifications about yet. The industry hold, holds its breath waiting for some of the clarifications on what this word ex mean exactly with respect to implementing these provisions because tax credits are awarded um, based on different levels of, say, is this component domestically produced? Well, the industry wants to know what does that mean? What is domestically produced? How do you calculate prevailing wages? And a lot of other devil in detail kind of clarifications that the industry is still waiting for in order to start planning and implementing the project. Another thought is that IRA uh, provides the certainty for at least 10 years 
At the same time, a lot of the project uh, lifetimes are 20 to 30 years. So we're looking at much longer investment timescales. By reducing risks for the first 10 years, that's definitely very welcome. At the same time, as an economist, you know that, hey, after 10 years, we don't know what's going to happen. Maybe uh, a administration that will be in power in 10 years would hate the idea and will try to slash all of these numbers. There is another interesting thing that I think is worth mentioning that is not even related to IRA is that EPA, US Environmental Protection Agency has changed, or I would say the has changed the evaluation for the social cost of carbon and increased it to $190 per ton, which is huge, which will be used for cost benefit analyses and other governmental analyses like risk analyses. This is a big change from $51 that was used before and $7 that was proposed by Trump administration in that sense that I think adequately shows the damages that carbon emissions could do to the economy and also takes into account the tipping points and other fat tail risks that present in the system. In that sense, IRA is a huge, very visible legislation, but they're also interesting um nerdy things happening behind the scenes that maybe only a few people pay attention to, but they're equally important because this will be the input into cost-benefit analysis that's going to dictate a lot of government policies and decisions. Let me for a second also go back to the numbers that you cited. You mentioned that the estimated cost of this legislation IRA is about $370 billion dollars for the climate related investment exactly and this i wanted to make sure that all the listeners understands that these are the estimates so these are not the subsidies that for sure will go out it could be that the us will spend much less but it could be that we will spend twice as much and their voices saying that it was an influential article in the atlantic recently that said hey we might spend twice as much because there is no tax credit cap So it's not a subsidy, it's a tax credit. The same comment towards the number that is being cited that it should reduce emissions up to 40%. Uh, This is shown as this is one of the pathways. It's a very ambitious target and it might be achievable only if a, a lot of other factors line up, such as we happen to be able, we should be able to do tremendous build-out of transmission infrastructure, as argued by Princeton University researchers. In absence of this transmission infrastructure, won't be able to move electricity from the generation sites to where it is needed. And as I mentioned in my prior answer, the U.S. has lost its ability to build out large-scale projects. So a lot of the IRS spending and a lot of the IRS impacts will meant based on the country's ability to build, implement, and shift quickly on a large scale. Thank you very much for your insight and also for the clarification about the numbers. I think this is something that is really important to realize about the estimates. And I just have also one comment to add to this. There's also this, let's say, practical challenge about executing on it. So there's been like an estimate of how many people had to be would have to be hired or people who actually are knowledgeable in this area. And can help execute on all of the administrative things, part of it, and all the mechanisms. So it's an enormous com- complex thing, but 
given the scale of it and the history of US climate policy, it's a thing we should be hopeful about it at least. And definitely I am and will be following the developments on it, definitely. So as we are moving towards the end, I do have two more questions for you. Both of them are on a personal level. The first one is for our listeners who are interested in the energy topic and to have you as an energy economist here I would like to ask you about any resources that you would recommend to follow. There's also many influential people that um, energy interested students or people who aspire to have a career in follow. So from your perspective, what resources would you recommend to these listeners? Yes, absolutely. I thought I would recommend four of my favorite women researchers is that the climate space is still very much dominated by male voices. And I've wanted to elevate these wonderful, extremely talented and knowledgeable researchers and um, public intellectuals, I should say. So my first recommendation is to follow Catherine Hayhoe. She is a climate scientist and a professor from Texas. She has a number of useful webinars on YouTube and a great website. Her webinars are explainers, basically. How would you explain to your neighbor or your grandmother what is global warming? And these episodes are called Global Weirding. She has an excellent newsletter and she wrote a book called Saving Us that I can really greatly recommend. So that was Catherine. Another person, US-based, if you're interested in US policy and want to be on top of what is it that U.S. is doing politically with respect to climate? I recommend Junior Piper. She is a very prominent journalist, and her pot, Political Climate, is readily available online. Then another person, a friend of mine, and somebody I really admire, Amy Myers Jaffe. She used to be president of the U.S. Association for Energy Economics. And currently, she's the director of the Energy, Climate Justice, and Sustainability Lab at the NYU. Uh, all of her writing and her TV and radio appearances are extremely informative and entertaining. And she's the author of the book, Energy's Digital Future. Great speaker. Recommend her greatly. Follow her on social media. Then we have Jenny Chase. Uh, she is a uh, head of all things solar at Bloomberg New Energy Finance. She's based in Zurich, but she writes about everything solar related globally. And she also wrote a book on solar finance, if you're interested. So these are the women scientists and public intellectuals that I greatly recommend. Thank you very much for these great resources and uh, amazingly inspiring that you have chosen these four women and that we are two women having this conversation. Like I really am happy for that. And uh, my last question would be regarding something that you mentioned also during the summer school this summer in Estonia, that you told us about the, your plan to get an electric vehicle, given that the life in the US is quite highly dependent on having a car. And so as an energy economist, what are some of your tips or some things that you have changed or practiced in the daily life in terms of energy efficiency or energy, having a more, let's say, more energy efficient lifestyle? Happy to share. I do think that we have to live the lifestyle that we subscribe to as part of our profession. So my challenge for this year is that I haven't purchased any new clothes. I did purchase used or I purchased nothing. And I have found out that actually I don't need a lot of new clothes. My kids do. They're growing. But this is a 
personal challenge for somebody who really loves fashion, somebody who enjoys to, to be stylish. And it was a challenge in 23. I hope to continue that. I also subscribe to a local farm for, for their food deliveries. So I purchase my, my food locally as much as I can. I do have solar panels on my rooftop, but this is not an option for everybody. It's just because my roof is fairly large. It's not shaded by the trees or by neighboring buildings. Been so far an excellent investment. My electricity bill has been pretty much zero. I do pay very small interconnection fee of $13. So we're still in November and I pretty much haven't paid for electricity since February. So far, it's been a great investment. So if you consider it, if you're in the US or in Europe, consider making the calculation, talk to your neighbors who have installed it. And this could be a great way of saving money and saving the environment. If you don't live in a house that can have solar panels, please consider joining a community solar park or subscribing to a community finance instrument that allows you to purchase green electricity that is produced locally. And this would decrease also your environmental footprint. I do recommend buying carbon offsets from flying. If you look at the importance of flying on person, the impact of flying on person's carbon budget, it's by far the largest spend. So it's very important if you fly somewhere to be able to um, mitigate these impacts. And finally, since we're all saving for our retirement or, or just playing around on the market, it's important to pick clean tech funds and investigate those. And I personally invest in into green ETFs and uh, also lithium battery technologies and green grid. I do think that much more education needs to happen on these. I don't pretend that I'm fully educated on that, but I'm trying to investigate the funds that invest the money in the way that is compatible with my worldview. Thank you very much. That's that's a whole lot and very inspiring with all, everything that you try to implement. Same here. And for example, we also discussed in our previous episode, a nice app called Vinted. Luckily, we live in an era where there's many active, proactive, innovative people, students who find startups and create a whole lot of different opportunities for the others to use. So that's great. And that brings us to the end of this podcast. Thank you very much, Anna, for being here and sharing your knowledge, insights, tips and um, perspectives. It's been a pleasure and I've personally learned a whole lot here. So thank you very much. Thank you for having me.